Now, at this point in our continuing dissection of the great prophetic book called the Book of Revelation, I want to pull together what we have been studying and looking at over many presentations. I want to begin by a revisitation of Revelation 17, looking at the woman who comes out of the wilderness. Uh, John says, one of, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So the Spirit carried me away into the wilderness. Now that's key. Carried me away into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, you remember earlier on that when the woman had given birth to the child who was, a, who was enthroned on the throne of God, the man-child, the woman fled into the wilderness where there was a space prepared for her by God. Now that's the connection to the wilderness. This is the woman we find now when the Spirit identifies that she had transitioned from being that promised source out of which out of whom the Messiah emerged. And she was pursued by the dragon, she was pursued by Satan, and she fled into the wilderness. Critically important facts. Well, number one, she was not given merely a free pass to go into the wilderness. The enemy pursued her as she fled into the wilderness. And God provided a space for her, provided a, uh, uh, an environment for her in which she might prosper, in which she might uh, flourish. This is analogous to Israel leaving Egypt and being pursued by the armies of Pharaoh. God provided for them in the wilderness. God provided first deliverance from the armies of Pharaoh and from slavery. Then God provided an entire economy enveloped in his presence. They were covered by a pillar of cloud in the day, 
a pillar of fire at night. So they were warmed. God air-conditioned the desert so they could be, uh, so it could be comfortable for them. The searing heat of the noonday sun would have been more than they could endure without the pillar of cloud. And at nighttime, when the temperatures plunged, they, they would experience bone-shivering cold, bone-chilling cold, and they would shiver in the discomfort of the desert. So God warmed the desert for them and gave them an, a, a space that was hospitable for them in the most inhospitable place. When you are taken into the desert, you are stripped of your own abilities to provide for yourself and you're given the opportunity to experience the presence of God in supply of everything. So not only were they warmed and cooled as, as it was appropriate for their daily lives, but they were fed from heaven, they were fed with manna from heaven. Their clothes did not wear out, their shoes did not wear out, and when they needed water, the rock of ages, who is the water of life, poured himself out in the form of physical water for their thirst, types and shadows of what are to come. But what happened to Israel in the wilderness after having seen the destruction of Pharaoh's armies, after daily living on bread from heaven and drinking water pouring forth miraculously, after being warmed and, and, and cooled as appropriate, what happened to Israel in the desert? Every man, every person capable of bearing arms who left Egypt, save only Joshua and Caleb, perished in the wilderness. They were on their way to a promise, an inheritance. They were on their way to being acquainted with the sovereign Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. They were invited into the presence of God. But their souls longed for the certainty of slavery. And in the end, every one of them, with those two exceptions I mentioned, died in the wilderness, even Moses. Although I'm willing to carve out a specific exemption because there are attendant facts and circumstances that would make it an exemption. And in fact, we see Moses being brought back to meet with Jesus and with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. But I'm not going in that direction just now. The point I wish to make is that there's a type of a people, the people of God, carrying the promise of the Son, fleeing into the wilderness, who are corrupted 
by a mindset that refused to change. In the book of Hebrews, when, when the writer is commenting on why they died in the wilderness, he attributed their destruction to two things, rebellion and disobedience. The Greek term for both is the same. It's the term apatheo. It means they became apathetic. Now, apathy is simply the lack of making a decision. So we are admonished not to fall into the same mindset as they did in the wilderness, the mindset characterized by apathy, with this scripture that says, So today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. The apathy of refusing to take a stand when the truth is presented to you is, is exactly the same as being disobedient and rebellious. Anytime the people of God in any age refuse to retain God in their knowledge so that they have no conviction about the person of the truth and the attributes and characteristics of the person of the truth. Anytime that happens, a people fall away. And the same thing happened to this woman in the wilderness. The woman who actually gave birth to the child who was the promise that was given to Israel even when they were in disobedience. Now, a generation did reach the, the promised land, but it was not the generation that left Egypt. That generation that left Egypt, every person uh, capable of bearing arms if you are a man, and certainly the equivalent age for women, died in the wilderness because of apathy. Now then, the woman of Revelation 13, uh, excuse me, Revelation uh, 17 and 18, that woman we found earlier, after she had been, after she had given birth, fleeing into the wilderness, so there she is in the wilderness. She merges out of the wilderness, or actually she's visited in the wilderness as the Spirit took John to see the great harlot. An absolute connection between the woman who fled into the wilderness and the harlot. That's why he had to go into the wilderness to find her. There's no other woman in the wilderness, by the way. It's not some anomaly or some, uh, some um, um, strange or unfamiliar uh, affectation. There is a woman in the wilderness. We know who she is. We know when she went there. What then is the wilderness? The point of any wilderness 
is defined by God himself. When he said to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, God said, I took you into this vast and trackless desert, to quote, with its scorpions and snakes, types of Satan. I took you into this wilderness, vast and trackless as it is, with its scorpions and snakes, to teach you one thing, so that in the end it will go well with you. What is the one thing? That a man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For our purposes, what is the importance of this? Well, Jesus connects the two, hardwired the two together in Matthew, beginning at the fourth chapter, where he was taken into the wilderness after the Son of Man was buried in baptism in the Jordan and the Son of God arose out of that water. When he, walked, when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove and a voice was heard out of heaven and since the voice acknowledged Jesus was the Son, the voice had to be the voice of the Father. God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, conferring upon him the status of the patent son. He was taken up into the wilderness for 40 days, a day for a year. Now in the wilderness he met his scorpion and snake. 40 days in, Satan came to him, like Satan came to the great ancestor Adam and Eve, ancestors Adam and Eve in the garden, just to connect the dots. Because when you're talking about the book of Revelation, it's not an isolated standalone piece. It is literally the tying up of everything that began in the garden, in fact that began before creation when the Lamb was slain. Adam and Eve were promised that the seed of the woman would bruise, would crush the head of the serpent and in the process he would bruise his heel. He comes, the serpent comes to Jesus in the wilderness and the challenge is this, if you are the Son of God. The challenge was, what will you exalt? Will you exalt the Spirit and its identity over the flesh and its needs? So when the woman goes into the desert, she's going to be faced with the same challenge because this is the eternal challenge. 
Same challenge Israel faced. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's a definitive challenge. It's a challenge that underwrites everything. Who are you in relationship to God? If you remain in in a fallen state, then you will inevitably default to the requirements of the flesh. Turn these stones into bread. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by a different kind of bread, the bread of show, the bread of his presence, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Critical understandings, because in the entrapment of this great beast, which we'll talk about when we get to it, in this summary session, in the entrapment of the beast, the conditions of the world become such that you cannot buy or sell without having a mindset to survive economically. And whoever exalts as preeminent the needs of the body will delay and defer the choice to be identified as a son of God and to, to, be, to acknowledge one's participation in the body of Christ. So the wilderness is a place for sorting, not in the South African way necessarily, of using the term to sort out, but in the way of separating sheep from goats, for example, or those who are the sons of God from those who have the mindset of a slave. The wilderness experience is wilderness because you cannot on your own survive. This is not like a well-watered field where you can live in the economy of seed time and harvest. This wilderness is designed to make sure that a kind of purgation, a kind of trial and separation will result in a choice because everything depends upon that choice. Everything. You can choose to give your life to God that He might inhabit it as pleases Him, where He truly is the Lord. Or you can retain Lordship but acknowledge Him in a religious way. Most religious people refer to Jesus as, quote, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the term Lord as used in that context, Lord and Savior, is just another way of saying Savior. He's willing to save. It's His doing to save you. You may choose to be saved or not be saved, 
But even if you choose to be saved, if he is not willing to save you, you can't be saved. So in the matter of him being savior, he is the prime actor. You are the pure beneficiary. But in the matter of lordship, you must submit. And submission means you don't have an opinion. When you hear what he says, you obey. When you are given the dictate as to what he wants of you, you obey. You do not rebel. That's why the wilderness is a time to confirm obedience and therefore the identity of reliance upon God, which qualifies you to be a son, or where you retain your own lordship while continuing to maintain your independence from God, only acknowledging that he's your savior. There's a day of reckoning that has come upon a church that has believed that to say Lord and Savior means that he actually is Lord, in form alone, but not in substance. So Lord and Savior will not do. Yes, he is Savior, and yes, he's Lord, but they're very distinctly different conditions. Savior is the act of his unmitigating benevolence. Lord is your response to him. Apathy has caused a great falling away. And here is how it actually works. In the wilderness, you're confronted with whether your need is the imperative or your obedience is the imperative. In short, if God exists to fulfill your needs, then your doctrine is that of living your best life now. And you hope that you can leverage the belief that he's your savior into you retaining your own lordship by telling him what you want. And because you claim he's your savior and loves you, like children, there is a manipulative energy to try to get him to do what he wants. And it comes to the point where no one questions anymore whether or not what they want is what God should be obligated to do. And that's the state of the current church. That's why she's a woman in a wilderness. To summarize the concept of the wilderness, the wilderness is the place where error substitutes for truth, where every man does what is right in his own eyes, where lawlessness abounds because there is no standard, and where faith is for things, not in the epistemology 
and the word faith is the word pistis, therefore the complete description of faith. The logic of the pistis, epistemology, sits upon two pillars. Number one, you come to God, you must believe that He exists as your Father. And number two, there is the recognition that when you diligently seek Him, which is not a passive thing, but a very active devotion, when you diligently seek Him, you will find Him because He will reveal Himself to you. When you find Him because He's revealed to you, when you find Him, you will be changed to be like Him, to be conformed to His will. The woman, who's taken into, the woman who flees into the wilderness has a choice. When the Roman Empire started uh, to receive the Christian faith, it only did so as a political convenience. Constantine offered the position of the state church to this desperate woman who had emerged out of great fires of persecution. Fires of persecution are designed to require you to choose. She, cho she chose poorly. She chose the favor of kings, which we'll talk about subsequently, and the abundance of an earthly economy. So when it's time for this woman to be disclosed in her horrifying condition of a woman who had the favor of God but behaved as a prostitute, she took on the spirit of Babylon and we've talked about that before. In the spirit of Babylon, one is known for, as Nebuchadnezzar, for the pride of one's own accomplishments. That's why Nebuchadnezzar was cut down. That's why the woman becomes a harlot. When we come back, I want to talk to you about what the world looks like in the days of the return of the Lord, where the woman who supposedly represents him has become complicit with the activities of Satan himself. And in fact, for all intents and purposes, she is part of that which has, was described originally in the book of Genesis as the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent will configure itself into a kingdom that has many false applications. And we will, we will speak to these issues uh, when we return. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye now.